This is Whitney Lane and Andrew Atia, Duke Plastic Surgery Residents with the Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. Today, we are continuing our new series called The Flapcast, which is designed to review the basic anatomy and surgical approaches to common flaps using plastic surgery. Today, we are joined by Dr. Edward Chang, Associate Professor of Plastic Surgery at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Dr. Chang received his medical degree from New York University before completing his residency training in plastic and reconstructive surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. He completed his training in microsurgery at MD Anderson in Houston, where he has stayed on as faculty. We're excited to welcome Dr. Chang to the podcast to discuss profunda artery perforator flaps. As uh, Andrew said, we'll be reviewing the profunda artery perforator flap. Uh, this is a fascio-cutaneous flap from the medial and posterior thigh region and is typically thought of as a secondary flap for breast reconstruction. So let's start with some regional anatomy. Keep in mind, there are three main compartments of the thigh. In this flap dissection, the perforator is mainly located within the medial compartment, which consists of the actor longus, adductor brevis, adductor magnus, and the gracilis muscles. The flap, for, as far as other flap anatomy goes, the blood supply to this flap is based off of perforators from the profunda artery, which travels through the adductor magnus muscle. We'll now bring in Dr. Chang to talk a little bit more about his experience with the profunda artery perforator flap. So to get us started, what are your general thoughts about the PAP flap? Um, is it a flap that you commonly use um, in breast reconstruction or other types of reconstruction around the body? I think the PAP flap really has become a flap that's becoming more and more popular and it's becoming more and more of a workhorse flap. Certainly for breast reconstruction, I would say for sure it's definitely the second choice option when the abdominal donor site is no longer available, whether it be secondary to patients having had an abdominoplasty or multiple previous abdominal surgeries. Our previous secondary flap option was probably gluteal-based flaps, either the superior gluteal perforator, but there are obviously logistical problems with using a gluteal flap, including position changes, and also the anatomy and the length of the pedicle and perforators for the S-gap, as well as sort of the quality and consistency of the fat. So I think the medial thigh region really is a very favorable donor site because the tissue quality feels very much like breast tissue and the anatomy is very favorable and you can harvest the flap without having to do a position change. Dr. Chang, when comparing this flap to other options for breast reconstruction, including things like the deep and gluteal flaps, what are some of the main advantages and disadvantages? I think the PAP flap really is much better than the gluteal flaps uh, because the quality of the tissue is much more similar to breast tissue. The gluteal fat seems to be a lot firmer. It's a little bit less pliable. So it's a little bit more difficult to shape a gluteal flap versus the pad flap being a little bit more pliable. You have more luxury in terms of coning it and shaping the flap. I think, again, like we had talked about, you're able to harvest the pap flap in the supine position. We can discuss a little bit more about whether you orient the flap transversely, diagonally, or vertically, but you can harvest the flap without having to change the position. So it actually saves a bit of time, and it's obviously a lot easier for, uh, for the nurses to not have to reposition the patient. I think the last benefit of the, um, the PAP flap is that the anatomy is very, very reliable. 
I have not encountered a situation where I have not found a usable perforator for the pap flap. So again, I think it has very reliable anatomy that is very amenable to harvesting for breast reconstruction or for head and neck reconstruction or other types of defects. One of um, the things that you had talked about uh, with us, you'd actually given uh, the Duke residents a really awesome grand rounds was um, that you typically mark your pap flaps in a vertical orientation. Um, from what we've typically seen as residents here at Duke, we, they're all marked in a horizontal orientation right under the gluteal fold. Um, so can you talk about the reasons that you made the change to a more vertical orientation for your flaps? Yeah, the... Transverse orange pap is really nice if you can get the scar and the incision right in the gluteal fold. It has a tendency to migrate a little bit. So if it doesn't fall precisely into the fold, you actually lose the benefit of orienting the flap transversely. For us, if you're going to orient the flap in a transverse orientation, I would recommend getting at least a CT angiogram. I don't know if that's a routine practice at uh, Duke, but that proximal perforator is not always very reliable. Um, at least in my experience, it's definitely not always the largest perforator. And there have been circumstances where exploring that proximal region, I've not encountered a sizable perforator to use. So had we oriented the flap or transversely, we would have potentially been in a situation where there was not a usable perforator at all. And in that circumstance, unfortunately, you have to convert to maybe like a tug or, you know, a gracilis malocutaneous flap. When you orient the flap vertically, though, again, the anatomy of the perforators is very reliable, and I have not yet encountered a situation where there is not a perforator, at least somewhere along that length longitudinally. The scar, though, for the vertical one is obviously something that you have to discuss with patients. It's not a scar that they can typically see because it's posterior once everything is healed. Um, but I think by far and large, most patients tolerate it fairly well. And again, sort of the decision between getting a scar that's a little bit potentially more favorable versus running into a situation where you don't have a, a reliable perforator, I think the trade-off is better and safer to do the vertically oriented flap. And that's a great segue into the next question I have for you, which is how do you preoperatively assess the vascular anatomy of the leg? So do you routinely obtain like a CTA on all your patients preoperatively? That's a great question. Um, I think when we first started doing it, again, when we weren't as comfortable and familiar with the anatomy and we weren't so certain about the uh, perforator orientation locations, we were getting angiograms on the patients. With the sort of increased experience and having done quite a few of these, uh, I've not gotten CT angiograms for any of the flaps that are oriented vertically. Again, I think the probability of not finding a usable perforator in the PAP flap distribution, I think is so unlikely and so rare that I think the benefit to the CT angiogram is sort of minimalized. But again, this is also very uh, surgeon and institution dependent. Our CT angiogram protocols are not ideal compared to a lot of other institutions that do a lot of angiograms, but as being sort of a cancer specialty hospital, they're very good at imaging for identification of cancer, surveillance for recurrence and things of that nature. They're not as good when we're talking about getting an angiogram to look at the vasculature. So when we look at even our deep flap angiograms, we get maybe like 200, 300 images. 
I think at other institutions where they have very well-defined, very specific angiogram protocols, I mean, you're getting, you know, triple that you're getting like a thousand images. There's an arterial phase, a delayed venous phase. So you're getting a lot more information for your buck, so to speak, and getting an angiogram at other institutions versus at our institution. I think the value is somewhat marginal, especially with how reliable the anatomy is. If you're going to do a transverse one, though, however, those would be circumstances I would recommend getting an angiogram, even though in a suboptimal institution in terms of uh, imaging, I think that's definitely worthwhile to know ahead of time if you're sort of committing to a transverse uh, flap. I think this leads into a, a, the, kind of the next question, which is how do you mark your patients? I know that um, some of our attendings mark the patients while standing. Um, some of the pa- our attendings mark the patients while they're in the operating room. I think that depends a little bit also on how you position the patient in the operating room, whether it's lithotomy or frog one. So can you speak a little bit more about that? I think, again, when we first started doing these, uh, we tended to have the patient supine with frog like them for transverse or vertical. Nowadays, if we're going to do a transverse, everyone gets put in a, a, a lithotomy position in order to harvest a transverse flap. I think that's much easier in order to harvest and also is um, easier for the dissection ergonomically. The problem with sort of having the patient lithotomy is it's difficult for an assistant to help. It's sort of a kind of almost a one-person show where you're sort of sitting in between the legs and dissecting out the flap transversely. For the markings, we tend to mark patients in the standing position for a transverse flap. So again, you can gauge how much laxity in the tissue by pinch, how much width of a flap you can harvest. And again, you really want to pay careful attention and try to place the marking so that the scar is ultimately going to end up right in the gluteal folds. If we're harvesting a vertically oriented flap, in those circumstances, I just mark the patients on the table. So after we've positioned them, we put them in a frog-like position, and then in a frog-like position, then we do the markings uh, for the vertically oriented flap. So it's a little bit more conducive, and you don't really need to mark the patients in the standing or in pre-op. One question that I have for you is, I've seen a, a video that you've made of the pat flap dissection, which is probably the premier video made on that dissection. And so I was wondering if you could talk to us about the paper published at MD Anderson in 2019, uh, which discussed perforator mapping. If you wouldn't mind kind of walking us through that paper and your findings. Sure. I mean, so that was actually um, the brainchild of one of our faculty, Renee Largo. Um, He trained in Europe. And again, I think we were doing them very minimally, but when he came here, he was doing them much more frequently, had much more experience with it. And we really wanted to delineate the anatomy much as we have done for a lot of the other flaps. I mean, the classic paper was Dr. Peyron Yu's paper on the ALT mapping. And we sort of kind of wanted to expand upon that experience and sort of delineate some of the anatomy of the pap flap as well. So we did a number of patients and these were all in a vertical orientation and we mapped out the perforators based on anatomic landmarks. So we were looking at around the pubic tubercle or the um, the inguinal crease down to the, uh, the medial of the condyle. So that was sort of the axis of the dissection for the flap orientation. And we gave measurements, whether it was posterior or sort of in the longitudinal orientation, and then also in the sort of transverse orientation. So kind of had like a coordinate grid. So when we mapped out the perforators using sort of that system, what we found was the anatomy is actually fairly reliable. And there are clusters 
of uh, perforators at very specific locations, the proximal one tends to be about seven to eight centimeters distal to the inguinal crease. So again, if it's present, it's very amenable to a transversely oriented flap. But if that perforator is not present, then unfortunately, you're going to be in a situation where you're going to have to convert that to a tug or something else. Um, and then the uh, other two, we kind of turn these to A, B, and C perforators, A being the more proximal, B being the middle, C being the distal. Then the other uh, remaining perforators are sort of oriented. I think it was somewhere around 11 to 12 centimeters. And the last one was somewhere closer to 19, 18, something like that range. Um, but again, you know, I think the anatomy was very favorable. I think we also looked at the frequency of A, B, and C and what combinations there were of uh, those three perforators. It's not that everybody has all three perforators, but the likelihood that there isn't a single perforator there is uh, I've not yet encountered that situation compared to the ALT, which I'm sure you guys have seen. You could open up a thigh and there could just be no perforators there at all. And then you explore medially for an AMT flap, or you maybe just have to abort that side and go to the other leg. Um, that, fortunately enough, I would, has never happened to me on the path. I've always been able to find at least one usable perforator. That's a nice segue into um, kind of some of our questions on your intraoperative dissection. Um, is I know that the dissection through the adductor magnus can sometimes be tedious. Um, do you have any tips or tricks to make the dissection easier or to um, kind of minimize the pain of dissecting all the way through the muscle? Yeah. Um, you know, previously, I think when we first started doing this, we actually just transected the muscle, um, but the perforators are going through. So you're not transecting the full thickness of the adductor magnus. You only are cutting through maybe like a third of it or a portion of it to trace the perforator to the main pedicle, to the takeoff off the profunda femoris vessel. Um, I think, um, you know, just becoming a little bit more experienced now, we tend not to cut the muscle transversely if we can help it. So sort of like a deep flap dissection where you're dissecting the perforators through the rectus abdominis. Now we tend to split the muscle along the fibers and you just open it up very widely along the entire length. And that gives you more visualization in order to be able to see the perforator. So you're not working in a small limited space. Inevitably, you have to cut some of the fibers transversely, but we try not to do that um, as much as we did when we first started harvesting the flaps. The other thing that is very helpful against sort of having done this trial by error, trial and error, is if you are getting very proximal to the takeoff of the profunda femoris, it sometimes is helpful to go on the opposite side of the gracilis, if that makes sense. So gracilis and the perforators come posterior to the gracilis muscle rather than retract the gracilis and try to get it from the, um, the posterior aspect of the gracilis. If you sort of split the fascia anterior to the gracilis, you actually will visualize the pedicle and the perforator coming off the profunda and you can get more length without having to retract and be dissecting in an awkward position underneath the gracilis muscle. So that actually has, um, we found to be much easier to do rather than be retracting, dissecting sort of in an awkward position. And what's the typical length that you can get on your pedicle? Ah, great question. So that will be a bit dependent on which perforator you use. In general, though, it's 
we measured this, it's somewhere typically between 10 to 12 or 13 centimeters, I think. Um, and if you kind of dissect it really, really far or the anatomy of the periphery is very favorable, you can probably even get an even longer pedicle than that in some circumstances. But one thing though, to be cautious of, and again, this may come up sort of in the later portion of the podcast, is the pedicle anatomy is obviously very different than the deep. The pedicle, even though in situ in the leg, when you measure it, it's something like 10, maybe 12 centimeters. After you cut it, the pedicle, and at least in my experience, retracts significantly. So you don't get that full kind of 10 centimeter line versus when you cut the deep pedicle, it's sort of, you know, it changes like very minimally. I mean, you may lose like a centimeter or something like that, but by far and large, sort of like what you have is what you have. In my sort of experience, I feel the pat flat pedicle contracts a lot more. So you get, you know, 10 centimeters in the leg when sort of on stretching or dissecting it through the muscle. But once you cut it, I feel it retracts considerably when you end up with something that's maybe like seven or eight centimeters of, uh, of length in the pedicle. And again, you can probably take a little bit of give with stretch, but you don't really want to cause a traction injury and pull too much tension on the pedicle. And then obviously the vessels are smaller, which you know we'll probably get into later on in the podcast. That actually leads to my next question, which is how do you typically position the pap flap on the chest, given the fact that the pedicle length does tend to be less forgiving than the deep flap to still get a nice breast shape, but also accounting for the fact that you are limited in terms of positioning? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, you know, this sort of applies for the deep flaps as well, depending on sort of the orientation, the length of the pedicle you have. Um, I tend to lay the flap sort of off to the side. Um, of the breast more towards the axilla. So um, on either the left or the right side. And then I bring the pedicle in sort of from the side, which oftentimes gives you a little bit um, closer proximity of placing the pedicle closer to the internal memory vessels without having to cause tension. If you put it sort of above or, you know, cranial or caudal on the incision for the, uh, the mastectomy, in those circumstances, you end up, somebody has to have their hand over the flap, which is very awkward because now you've kind of have your hand resting on it and you're kind of going over the flap into the chest to do the anastomosis, which I think is a little bit more difficult. In some circumstances, you may have to do that. Um, but generally what I do is I sort of lay the flap again off to the axilla and the flap we secure in place with sutures or staples, or you could wrap it in a lap pad and you know secure it so it doesn't slide. But that sort of gives you a little bit more laxity in positioning the pedicle in closer proximity to the internal mammaries and avoids tension on the anastomosis. The other thing is I always take out a rib on my internal memory dissection. I know a lot of people do rib sparing. Um, I always take out a rib and try to get a lot more length on the internal mammary vessels. And again, I think that's helpful as well. So you're not working with a short stump of the internal mammary vessels and struggling through a smaller uh, intercostal space. And I think, again, that makes the anastomosis a lot easier to do. Dr. Chen, can you comment on the size, um, either match or mismatch between the pedicle and typically the internal mammary, which we're plugging into? Great question. Um, you know, the pap pedicle by far and large tends to be smaller than the deep. 
the vein is usually not as much of an issue. It's usually the artery size that's a bit smaller. The vein, I think, on average is around two and a half uh, millimeters, but it can be even a little bit larger, like close to three. But the vein is usually of good size. The artery, though, tends to be a little bit smaller, and it usually is maybe like two millimeters at the most. Um, so there can be a bit of a size mismatch to the internal memories. So how you can account for that is a lot of different ways. Um, probably the simplest thing to do is to take it down a inner space. We typically dissect our internal memories in the third intercostal space for a deep flap. So if you go down an inner space, the size match of the vessels will be actually much closer to the size of the pap. So you can dissect down into the, um, the fourth intercostal space, uh, and then you'll get a better suitable size match. Um, most times when we're doing the pap, um, we're stacking them. So again, you sort of have to balance the, uh, the size, but um, on a stack with the deep, we typically put the deep antegrade and the PAP retrograde. So the retrograde internal memory vessels, again, tend to be a smaller set of vessels. So the size matches typically a little bit better because you're using the more distal internal memory vessels. Which brings me to my next question. How much weight can you typically get from a PAP flap? Great question. So we're actually looking at that now. I mean, I imagine you guys are probably lots of people are looking at this. What we want to do is we actually wanted to compare uh, longitudinal versus transversely oriented paths. And my hypothesis was that you can get more tissue um, longitudinally than you can transversely because transversely, it's, it's all based on the pinch, right? So I think probably I would say maximum is probably five to six centimeters unless somebody's got a lot of tissue and they're sort of uh you know i guess you guys have this in north carolina too people are a little bit um uh heavier than uh you know maybe say the northeast um but um, probably the maximum width is somewhere between like five six centimeters maybe you can push to seven certain patients um but on the um on the longitudinal uh orientation you can sometimes get quite a bit of width on people who have quite a bit of laxity uh, in the medial thigh. So you can potent potentially get a width of maybe seven or eight centimeters and the length you can actually take as long as you want, as long as you're conscientious of how long the scar you're going to create is. So I think you can get a lot more volume also in a longitudinal oriented um, path flap than you can on transverse. So we're sort of looking at that now. It's obviously going to be based on a bit on patient's body habits as well, but on the uh, on the at least in the vertical, because I do tend to do more vertical than the uh, the transverse. On the vertically oriented uh, path, I think on average we can get anywhere from like three to five hundred grams. So typically you're stacking them, so you're going to be getting yeah. quite a bit of volume uh, in order to uh, address it. And I always take uh, uh, flaps from both thighs because again, you don't want to create an asymmetry in the thighs. And women are actually pretty happy with um, you know, the quote unquote thigh gap that they can get uh, from uh, the vertically oriented path. But I mean, I think uh, on average, you can at least get like three to, you know, in some patients, even up to 500 grams. That is um, a good segue into this next question, which is <clears throat> we have all heard several presentations of people talking about breast reconstruction where they use four flaps. So bilateral deeps and bilateral paps. Um, when, if ever, do you feel like a four flap case is necessary? If you've ever done one, and um, 
if you have, how do you streamline your operative time so that you're not in the operating room for like 12 hours dissecting flaps out? For some reason, and I imagine you guys probably encounter this issue as well. Uh, my patient population tends to be a little bit on the heavier side. So when I looked at like my own experience of bilateral um, deep flap reconstructions, my average BMI was somewhere around 36 for a bilateral. So it's a rare circumstance that I have somebody who is really petite that really would benefit um, that sort of uh, reconstruction. But to some of my colleagues do it more regularly and routinely will do stack pap deeps and i think the probably the most critical aspect is sort of having a co-surgeon um, work with you and you're kind of dividing up the labor to make the uh, operation much more efficient so you go ischemic the moment a flap is ready and dissected so internal memory vessels are dissected by one faculty with a fellow and at the same time the other faculty and fellows elevating the deep flaps by the time the 1D flap is harvested, your vessels are ready, you go ischemic, and you finish the other deep flap dissection while they're doing the micro on the first. And then when you're done with the first, usually the second deep flap is ready, and then you store just kind of round robin it. And as the uh, micro is being done, another flap is being elevated, so you're really saving the, uh, the operative time. Um, the times that I've done it, I've done it a few times just by myself. Um, it does take a bit of time, but you know, fortunately, we do actually have um, a very gifted set of fellows, as you guys know, um, Dr. Sis, Dr. Phillips, they're very good. I mean, a lot of these people obviously are capable and competent to be practicing um, plastic surgeons or spending a year with us for the fellowship. So I'm very fortunate to have fellows who I can trust to do good portion, you know, good significant portion of the operation. So it's almost like working with another faculty. So I tend not to co-surge in my cases and we still tend to finish, you know, pretty quickly. Usually it's still um, close to about an eight to 10 hour operation for a four flap, um, you know, stacked pap deep. Um, but um, I think uh, once you get sort of the system down and you're comfortable working with somebody and it's very clearly delineated who's going to be performing what role, I mean, I think you can get the operation down to like eight hours or potentially even less. That's awesome. So let's let's move out of the operating room and ask you a few questions about the post-op period, if that's okay. So one of the most common post-operative complications that we've seen in PAP flaps is the donor site dehiscence. So do you have any pearls for closure of the donor site? What post-operative restrictions do you have for your patients? Yeah, that's a, I agree with you. I think, you know, with either the transverse or the, um, the longitudinal, I think they are potentially at risk for um, dehiscence and donor site complications. Um, the transverse one, again, I think the critical thing is one, obviously your pinch test and how wide of a flap you harvest. Again, if you're in a circumstance where you've taken the flap a bit too wide, your incision is going to be under tension. So whenever the patient is sitting in situations like that, it's going to be putting more tension on the incision. But when you close it, it's really important to suspend that posterior fascia, like Coley's fascia, um, and anchor it in place to really take the tension off. So you're doing a much more um, layered closure of the transversely oriented flap and the sort of longitudinally as well. Longitudinally closure is similar to a deep flap closure. Um, we always use a um, 
a uh, absorbable suture, usually like a PDS or a Vicryl for scarpas or you know coles fascia, and then the deep dermal layers and the subcuticular are usually typically done with a monocryl suture. Uh, for patients who really are um, under a bit of tension that we're concerned about dehiscence, we do consider placing a wound vac. The problem with a wound vac for either of them is it can make it difficult for mobilization and ambulation. So we don't tr typically do that as frequently. Again, sort of a lot of minimized tension is sort of in the flap design. But I do always wrap my patients uh, postoperatively. So the dressing goes on. I don't typically dermabond um, these. I usually do like an antibiotic ointment and then a methylex gauze or something like that. And then I wrap the patients with an ACE bandage and I sort of leave the ACE wrap on for the first two, three days before removing the ACE bandage. Um, and then when they start to ambulate, I tell the patients, you know, if you feel that swelling, we can rewrap you and put the ACE bandage back on. As far as most of our conversations gone, we, you know, typically use pap flaps in terms of breast reconstruction. Um, that's what we typically think of for pap flaps. As we're getting kind of close to the end of our time together, is it a flap that you use in any other parts of the body for reconstruction? And where do you think the pap flaps can be used or utilized that we are maybe underutilizing this as a reconstructive option? We're using it quite a bit for head and neck reconstruction, actually. Um, it comes, unfortunately, with uh, the territory of sort of head and neck cancer and the recurrence rates and things like that. So many patients have probably already had ALTs harvested and they're no longer available. Or again, you want to sort of pretend like we had talked about where there's just no perforator in the ALT distribution. So the PAP flop, again, having very reliable anatomy sort of has become sort of one of our um, almost like a workhorse flap for us. But for me, the probably biggest use for the path up or head and neck reconstruction is for soft tissue and um, fill. And so for patients who have uh, parotidectomy defects, we're using it. People that need neck resurfacing, uh, I've used it. Um, we're sort of in a process of writing up a paper where we're, <clears throat> excuse me, where we're combining the path flap with a gracilis flap in order to reconstruct a prodectomy defect where the facial nerve is sacrificed. So we're using the PAP flap in order to restore the volume and to resurface the skin resection. And then the gracilis, we're doing a functional muscle transfer in order to address the facial nerve deficit all in one operation. Um, so again, I think uh, for head and neck reconstruction, there's a lot of utility of the PAP flap, you know, again, especially because the ALT anatomy may not always be that reliable. And especially for patients who have had recurrent disease or have potentially lost an ALT flap in the past, this is another very, uh, very reliable donor site to use. Well, Dr. Chang, we've really enjoyed having you. And I have a, just a bonus question I'd like to ask you, which is what's the best advice that you could give to a graduating resident and fellow or interested in microsurgery and want to start a busy practice? Um, I think uh, the best thing, you know, obviously you guys are getting great training at Duke. You guys have very talented faculty and I'm sure you guys wouldn't be there if you guys weren't already very talented. So you guys are really represent probably like the cream of the crop of what's graduating from medical school these days. Um, I think the best thing to do is just to do things safely. Um, again, you know, for the dissection, you know, a lot of these things are sort of things that we've gained with time and experience. Um, but I did, I, I, for example, with the, like deep flap reconstructions, 
I don't do single perforator deeps. I know that's very popular in Europe. I know it's faster to do single perforator. Um, I'd never do a single perforator deep. I always take at least uh, two perforators, if not more. Um, again, I think the issues with um, relying on a single perforator for a deep flap, in my opinion, is putting it at a little bit of a risk, whether it be for complications or even for fat necrosis. Um, or even if you have to take a little bit of muscle, like Lisa Wu, as you guys all know, I mean, everybody knows who Lisa Wu is. She doesn't do deep flaps. She does only muscle sparing tram flaps. She's very fast and very efficient at it, but she only does muscle sparing tram flaps. And she believes that the donor side morbidity is very comparable between a muscle sparing tram and a deep. So in her estimation, there's no real benefit to doing a deep flap when you can do an MS tram very fast and very efficiently with good outcomes and minimal donor side morbidity. Um, I think, um, you know, the, the technical aspects of doing anastomosis, I think most people are very comfortable with. So it's usually not a technical issue with doing the microvascular anastomosis. I think it's usually sort of about the actual preoperative and the operative dissection of the perforator and then the postoperative monitoring where people run into the most trouble. The technical aspect of the sewing the anastomosis and sewing the vessels together is usually not the issue. Well, that's some great advice because I think we all get very hung up as residents on our ability to sew arteries together well. But I'd really like to thank you for coming on today and sharing your uh, thoughts and experience with the pop flap. I think this is going to be invaluable to our listeners. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.